On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. Thank you, Melissa. So I want to pray uh, for our time together. I'll explain a little bit why we're in Acts there in a second. Um, And then I also want to pray for new life. But before I do that, I want to add something for us just to be aware of and something else we're going to pray for. Um, I got a text uh, this week from John Demeter. Uh, If you guys aren't aware, we break up our leaders into cohorts. And John's Demeter, in John Demeter's cohort, it was uh, uh, Adam and Amy Van Loo. And in Adam and uh, Amy Van Loo's community, um, he let John know what something that had took place. And, um, if you guys, I understand not everybody knows everybody as we grow as a larger church, there's going to be disconnect in relationships, but there's always somebody you can recognize. Maybe when you're out to eat or something, you can see somebody, you go, Oh my goodness, they, they go to the same uh, church that I go to. Uh, well this last week, um, a man named Justin Freer, if you don't know him, uh, was at the gym and he had a heart attack and died. Um, and we got the text from John. I'm going to show you a picture. Maybe you can uh, recognize him in the middle. Um, you've probably seen him around. He's a bigger guy, super lovable. Um, Elizabeth Aubrey um, are, are off to the right, and, um, and uh, Carson is uh, to the left. And it's been a, I mean, we prayed as a staff, as elders, we've been praying. Um, it's a real difficult situation, obviously, as you can imagine. Um, so I, I just want to pray for the family. But before I do, here's something else I want you to see. Um, I want to put my email on the bottom here. So, as you can imagine, the situation that they're in is difficult uh, for multiple reasons, and there's a lot of us, 99% of us are not going to sit and counsel with them, but you do want to go, what can I do? And so, something that we're going to, as we gather around the freers to, uh, to do, is they're trying to provide meals, the Van Luce set this up, to provide meals for the rest of the school year, three days, uh, three times a week for them. So they don't, that's one less thing for them to worry about right now. If you can imagine trying to bury your husband, um, what that would mean, and, and the, the equity of emotion that would take from you. So, we want to open it up for, we don't usually do this, but for all of us as a congregation. And so my email is up there because I want you to email me if you are interested. And the reason we're adding this extra step is, um, you may not be aware of this, and it is, always, it is always from the best place, but sometimes the church world can care too much. Um, what I mean by that, it's not, <laughs> that sounds wrong, but um, I, we're worried maybe some of you, you want to drop off a meal and you feel like, hey, I just want to sit down with you for an hour and talk through this. I'm going to tie my shoe while I do this. Um, I, I want to uh, talk with you for an hour and have an hour-long counseling session. Um, and, and here's the deal. We love you. They don't need that from you right now. They need Uber Eats. They need someone to pick up a meal and bring it to them, say we love you, and drop it off. That's what they need right now. As elders and leaders, we're rallying around with them, and they need some time to be, 
okay? And so if you want to do that, you like, listen, you don't got to cook. You can pick something up from Chipotle, right? You can pick something up and bring it to them. We'll get you that information and how to sign up. But I need you to email me if, if that's something you want to do. I'll play middleman there, okay? So let's pray for them. Let's pray for our time together. Let's pray also for New Life Church. If you don't know, New Life is right up the road from us. They've had a really, really rough year. Um, and I just want to pray for the leadership there, the elders there. Um, you know, it, it is what it is, but let's pray. Um, Father, thank you again for the opportunity just to hear from Matt and to know that we have an opportunity to give to AZ Reach and um, all that Juan's doing uh, with his Man Up program there. These are gifts that we get to serve in this way. Um, there's also a lot of uh, heartache and brokenness in the world that we walk in. There's a recognition that things aren't the way that they're supposed to be. Um, and that's clear with uh, Justin and his passing. And I'm sure you know he's the only one amidst all of us in the family included that doesn't regret where he's at as he's with you now, um, but it doesn't make it any less difficult for us now. Um, and so we pray for the Freer family. We pray, God, that you would be with them. Give Elizabeth um, crazy amounts of courage and boldness and wisdom as she navigates uh, this really, really difficult time. For most of us, we couldn't begin to understand. Um, so be with them. But we also pray for New Life Church. We also pray, God, that you would uh, be with them, and even now this morning, that the word of God would come alive. We pray for the elders there. Give them the ability to navigate the situation that they've been in this last year as they're getting out of it. Give them um, encouragement, honestly. Give the leadership and the staff there some encouragement as they are kind of can continue to keep the ball rolling and uh, moving down the field. So help them and anoint them. And then lastly, we just pray for us. We pray that as we open up your word and we talk through things that are difficult, we pray, God, that you would be with us. We can't do this without you, Holy Spirit. So guide us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to jump in just because of time. Um, if you don't know, uh, you know how we work at Redemption Church, we're always going to go through books in the Bible. And we feel like that's the best way to understand the Bible is to go through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter. But there are moments where we've got to stop sometimes and go, hey, we've got to talk about this. And um, what's been brewing within the lead team is there are certain issues. We have lots of convictions, right? But there are select few of those convictions that we feel like, hey, do all of our people know where we stand on these issues? And we want to be clear to mark out in a world that is very muddy, right? Uh, and, and, and can and go one way or the other. It's fickle at times. We want to go, hey, listen, if you're going to be part of Redemption Peoria, here's where we stand on this issue. And what we're calling this is it's seven weeks of countercultural thing. There's these things. Now, these aren't the only convictions, these countercultural convictions. These aren't the only things that, that we have stand on, but these seven things we felt like, let's identify. Now, we started last week with love, okay, which I'll unpack here in a second, but I really want you to know just from my heart, and I think trying to articulate for all of redemption, for, for all of us, we're not doing this to be cool, okay? Because there have been moments within the church where you try to do a series and you go, what's going to bring the most people in the room? We're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about gender. And those are cool things to talk about. You can get your friend to come to church if you go, hey, guess what? We're going to talk about sex, right? And I'm always thinking, why would you bring the non-believer to this one, right? Um, okay. But, but we're doing it because, not because it's cool or flashy. We're doing it because we feel like it's pastoral. We feel like there's a moment where we want to stop and go, hey, cool or not, we also don't want to do it or don't not want to do it because it's cool, right? So we go, you know, it's worth stopping and saying, here's where we stand on this. And these countercultural things, some of which are countercultural to a way that your neighbor who's not a believer holds to things. And some are countercultural even within the church where we stand as a reformed community. 
So we're going to unpack these and go through all of them. I'm going to take the next five, and then John will finish with the last one. So we're going to go through uh, a lot of the nitty-gritty here. Now, John started uh, us with this idea of love. And so I want to pick it up uh, from where he left off uh, last week. And here's what I want to say from the jump. Uh, Tim Mon always says, it is the most loving thing to do to tell the truth. And so we're going to articulate something this morning, and we believe it's from love. This is what John said last week. It's from love that all the things we're talking about, that's what's pushing us in that direction. So as we process love, we start with the statement, God is love. Now, now hear me when I say this, because there's even a countercultural idea in that. We're not saying love is God, therefore you identify love and you have your God. We as believers, and this is important if you're not a believer in the room, we're saying God is love, therefore God defines love, therefore God gets to tell us what is the loving thing to do. Okay, That's how we're operating, and so we look to his word for that. Now as you see this, here's what, what you need to understand about the idea of love. Love always always 100% of the time always asks for movement to the one that is being loved when the one that is being loved is in the wrong place. Okay. Always meaning, uh, you know, at one point I was a terrible parent, uh, had our firstborn Corbin. He's two years old. I go inside the house. I'm working in the garage, go inside the house and I walk out and somehow my son has slipped by and he's in the, I walk out and he's in the middle of the streets. Okay. I mean, it's classic CPS, like no clothes on diaper hanging down. And I'm like, I promise I'm a good dad. I promise I'm a good dad. And so from that moment, because I love Corbin, he's in the wrong place, right? A toddler in the middle of the street is the wrong place, right? We can agree on this. And so I go and I grab him, Corbin, get over here. This is true, like uh, uh, generationally above me, my dad being a drug addict for 30 years, over and over and over again, because I love him, I'm not okay with where he's at. Do you understand? Love always asks for movement when the one that is being loved is in the wrong place place. Now, sometimes it's softer, sometimes it's gentle and it's slower, but we're always trying to move the person we love from that place because we love them, because we love them. Now that doesn't just have to be true on a personal level. It absolutely is true at a large level, meaning we can look at society without relationship with everyone. We go, this is what we believe is best as uh, 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 within our worldview, as a culture, we feel like we should move in this direction. It's not because we hate you. It's because we love you. Do you understand? So love is propelling us. Now, with all of that said, there needs to be this statement uh, that, that uh, I'm going to make uh, here in a second about Jesus. But I need you to get out of your mind uh, this idea that exclusivity or being exclusive is bad. When we say we have countercultural convictions, meaning we're going to stand here and I'm going to make a, sec- uh, a statement in a second. And we're going to say this is an exclusive statement. It's wrong. It's bad for Corbin to be in the road. Now, the reason I want to say, be careful if somebody, if maybe you're in the room or your friend goes, well, to, to be exclusive and said, that's so arrogant. Hear me when I say this. Everybody is exclusive in some way. Even to say everyone has to be inclusive, we have to accept everyone for the way that they are, in of itself is an exclusive statement. Because if I don't hold to that, I'm outside of that exclusiveness. Do you understand? Maybe not. That was confusing. Okay? But here, here's, here's my point. We're all exclusive. So it all depends on who we're going to be exclusive with, how we're going to be exclusive, but most importantly, why? Why are we being exclusive in this way? And so let me make our first countercultural statement that is opposites from the culture at large. We believe that Jesus Christ 
is the only way for salvation. We believe, now hear me, hear me. We believe any other way, any other way that someone would declare they can be saved or they're in a good place is wrong. Okay? Now hear me. I'm going to say this. We're going to go at it here in a second. That means the ideology and the theology of coexist is wrong. We would say as we look at that, we go, no. There are not multiple ways, like God's an elephant, we're all touching a different part. That's not, the, that's not how we view that. We believe Jesus Christ is the only way for salvation. He is the ultimate authority. He is the one and true God. Okay? Now, with that statement, I want to unpack how it's countercultural and how we get there. So open up to Acts chapter 4 as we begin to, to, to go at this. So Acts chapter 4, we're going to read verses 5 through 12, um, and uh, I want to start off last um, month, we're in March now, last month uh, we celebrated five years of a church plant, and I remember the first time we went up, we had a pre-launch service before we ever officially launched, and I knew in that pre-launch service, I was so nervous the Saturday before, and I knew what I wanted my first word to be. So I got up in that pre-launch service, and the first word I said, I was even asking Josh for a recording, but we don't have it, I said, Jesus. I said, Jesus, Jesus pushes us towards mission. Jesus is the reason we're planting the church and we're planting the church for mission because Jesus calls us to do that. We have always wanted to be about Jesus. As John said last week, he's the epitome. He is the archetype for love. He's the one who guides us in this. And so we believe Jesus is the only way of salvation. We pick it up in Acts chapter 4. If you're not aware of the context, what's been going on, there's these two guys, Peter and John, who um, now, uh, based on watching their disciple or Jesus Christ, now they themselves are taking up this mantle. They're going around healing people. They heal this certain man, and the Jews don't like what's going on. And so they, they essentially put uh, Peter and John, not essentially, they do, put Peter and John in prison and then uh, uh, bring them into a courtroom to begin to interrogate them. And so this is where we pick up in this context in verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and their elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with uh, uh, Annas, the high priest, uh, Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were at the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? That question is what's going to catapult us to getting at Jesus as the ultimate authority. Here's the Jews asking this question. How are you doing this? Who's giving you the power to heal people? By what name are you doing this? Whose authority do you fall under? What is going on? And, and then Peter, as he usually does, he answers. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Peter's response, in short, because we don't have a lot of time, is very simple. You want to know how we're doing this? Jesus Christ. You crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Jesus Christ. Peter is not worried at all to go, no, no, no. Everything that we're doing is for Jesus. Everything that has been done is because of Jesus. No problem with making that declaration. And then he goes on to say this in verse 12, is where we're going to camp. 
Here's the statement. And so just to be clear, we're using scripture. If you're not a believer in here, you're going, well, you're saying Jesus is the only way based on what? We're going the Bible. And you're going, well, that's easy for you to say because then there's other scriptures, that w- other books that would say that's not true. We'll get in that in the coming weeks. But for now, I need you to hear this based on our worldview, our religion, uh, holding the Bible to what it is, which is what we're going to unpack next week. Here's the statements. Verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Hear that. Hear that. There is no other name. There's no other name. There's no other way of life. There's no education. There's no philosophy. There's no political diagram you can draw up. Hear me. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus saves. This is Peter's declaration. So I want to unpack this one statement in verse 12. Now, the first thing that I want to do is I want to acknowledge a cultural difference because here's the reality. What would be true for them would also be true for our parents or some of you or grandparents 60, 70 years ago that when I make the declaration or Peter makes the declaration, Jesus is the only one who saves. The people who are hearing this are assuming eternal salvation and they would be right. I think that's what Peter is talking about. But there's a... uh, a cultural misconception that I want to identify here that here's the reality. And this is just uh, being a millennial, just seeing this. The reality is if I tell somebody who is 25 years old, Jesus is the only one who saves. And if you do not follow or do not believe in Jesus, then eternity is lost for you. You are going to hell. Hear me. They don't care. The reality is here's their response. I mean, honestly, just over and over. You have your truth. I got mine, bro. Like you believe, I don't even believe in hell. So why would I be worried about going there? And so the reality is there's a a, a disconnect culturally. So let me say to some of you who are in the room who have friends like that, or maybe you are like that. I, I would contend that this is not just, we're going to get to the eternal aspect of, aspect of this, why this is true, but I don't think this is just eternal, okay? I dare, and I'm not trying to change the Bible, but I think you could easily say this as well. This is not canon, but I think you can say this easy, just as easy. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we might find true joy. Meaning, uh, I think Jesus ultimately saves for eternity. I think that's what we're getting at. Again, I'll unpack that in a second. But I also want you to contend for a second that there's no other worldview that will bring the joy or the true right of humanity or find the peace that you have in Jesus Christ. The way that Tim Keller describes it is all other worldviews are like wearing a small suit. Like you think you can wear it and you think you can operate. But when everything goes to hell and high water, when there's a heart attack in the family, when there's a loss of life, when there's a loss of job, your worldview, you move too much and that suit rips. So I would challenge you or I would challenge your friend, does the worldview they hold to, that there are other ways to find joy, is it really bringing them joy? Is it? Because I, I, I think I'm right into contend, especially in the Gospel of John, that only Jesus can bring ultimate joy. That we can lay our head down at night and the world could be crumbling around us. Losing our house, losing a family member, losing a job, whatever it is. And we can go, it's going to be okay. Listen, listen. That is something. That's something to navigate. That's something to, to wrestle with. And so it is true for, for, for you to understand, like, the God who made joy is offering you joy. Do you understand? He knows what true joy is, and he's offering you joy. 
He's seeing that you're in a bad place. And so because he loves you, he's asking for movement. And it's the most loving thing to do to follow Jesus. It is not easy. Dare I say it's actually more difficult when you, when you follow Jesus than when you don't. But it brings a joy that no other worldview can provide. Okay? Now, with that being said, the same God who provides joy, who created joy, is also the God who made salvation and is offering salvation. And in this context, hear me when I say this. You cannot hold to Allah. You cannot hold to Buddhism. You cannot hold to, we're going to get into some of this, the ideology of Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. We'll unpack all this stuff. Self-love, crystals, whatever it is. I'm trying to think of a million different worldviews. Agnosticism, atheism, none of these things, especially the last one there, is going to save you. These things will not save you. Only Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who died and was raised from the dead, he will save you. That's Peter's declaration. That's Peter's declaration. And so here's what I want to do. I want to ask a question. Why Jesus? If we as believers hold to the Bible, what does the Bible say in backing up Peter's claim there in verse 12? And so I want to tell us the story. The story that we might not be familiar with, but at least I can say we've probably said a hundred different times. It's our worldview story. And I want you to see where Jesus is in this story. So let's start before there's anything. Why would Peter declare, no, 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 Jesus is the only way of salvation. Why doesn't he declare Elijah is the only way for salvation? Moses is the only way for salvation. Why Jesus? Check this out. Before there was anything, I'm going to read through this because I will definitely get lost and I will go over time. Before there was anything, you can, you can look up all these references uh, if you want to. In John 1.1 and Philippians 2.6, we are told Jesus was with God, he was God, and he was equal to God. We're told in John 17.5 and 24, this is what Jesus says, you love me before the foundation of the world. I had glory with you before the world began. In 1 Peter 1.20, it says this, he was the savior foreordained before the foundation of the world. First thing from the jump, like let's get out the blocks here and let's make the declaration before there was anything, there was Jesus. Point number one, the reason only Jesus can save is because before there was the idea of saving, there was Jesus. But then eventually God chooses to create things. And we may ask, well, then where was this Jesus then? You know what the Bible says to this in John 1, 3? It says all things were made by him and without him, nothing was made that was made. In Colossians 1, 16, it says by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. So he was before all things. And now as God speaks all of these things into existence, you know who's the one creating them? You know, the words that are making all these things, Jesus was there as well. Now, it doesn't stay perfect. We know our story. Genesis 3, as I asked Matt, there's a brokenness to this world. And so I ask in Genesis 3, where was Jesus then, Peter? If Jesus is so amazing, where was he then? This is what it says in Genesis 3, 15. The seed of the woman would yet bruise the serpent's head. In Romans 5, 17, we're told this. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through one man, Adam, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and a free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Two points here. You want to know where he was? He was in this small whisper of a prophecy. I know right now the world's broken, but one day I'm going to send a savior and he may bite the heel, but that heel will crush the head. That's Jesus. We're told in Romans five, this idea that Adam failed us. Do you understand? Adam failed us. You would fail us. I will fail us. We fail ourselves every single day, but you know who won't fail us? You know who's better than Adam? 
Jesus. That's where he was. He came as an archetype, Adam came as an archetype to show us there's this one man who chose sin, but Jesus chose life, and in him we find righteousness. That's where he was amidst the brokenness. But then you continue to turn the pages, and you read all these bonker stories you don't know what to make of. And I'm telling you in this moment, Jesus is the key to unlock the door of all of those stories of the people of Israel. By way of example, 1 Peter 3.18 says every time you read about a sacrifice, think of Jesus. In John 8.56, when you read the story of Abraham, think of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 10.4 and 3.14, when you think of the bronze serpent of Israel, when you think of the cloud by day, the fire fire by night, when you think of King David, when you think of the prophets, think of Jesus. As as Colossians 3.10 says, Christ is all. He is all. And so in our story, from our worldview, which you may not hold to if you're here, from our worldview, Peter's making a declaration, all of the Old Testament has been about Jesus. It's been pointing to Jesus. They didn't see it early on, but we see it now. And so then there's 400 years of nothing. God doesn't speak. 400 years of silence. This is called the intertestamental period. A period between those, like, as you're done reading Malachi and it says the New Testament, that page right there represents 400 years. And so we ask, where is Jesus as he comes on the scene? And I give you reference here, as some of you are going to be more and more familiar uh, with this story. I'll read these to you for the sake of time. He leaves the glory that he has with the Father from all eternity, and he comes down to provide salvation. He takes on human nature, both born as a man, from a virgin. As a man, he lives out our life that we couldn't live perfectly before the will of God. He suffers on the cross, which we have ought to suffered. He dies for our sins. He raises again for our justification, therefore fulfilling Genesis 3.15, if you remember that. He ascends to uh, to God's right hand into heaven, and there he sits now. In the Gospels, we see Christ preached, lived, speaking, moving among men. In the book of Acts, his church is born. In the epistles, Christ is written of and explained and exalted. We see Christ all over. It is clear that the New Testament is about Jesus Christ, but we're in a period not there, and we're in a period sometime in the future that's going to come. And so maybe the question is, well, then where will Jesus be? When it's all said and done, if Jesus is who he said he was, then what can we hope in? Peter, why are you making this declaration? Why is Jesus the big deal, the only one who can save? And what the scripture tells us to this in the end, there's two things you need to be aware of. There will be a judgment. And number one, Jesus will be the judge. He's big enough and more powerful enough than we understand in this. In Revelation 20, verse 13, in Daniel 12, 2, it says this, the, sh- the sea shall give up the dead who are in it, and the death and hell shall deliver up the dead who are with them. All who sleep in the grave shall awake and come forth, and they shall be judged according to their works. That day is coming. Judgment is coming. Whether you die before that moment or in that moment you're taken up, you will stand before a judge. You want to know who the judge is? You already know who the judge is. In John chapter 5, 22, Matthew 25, 31, 32, and 2 Corinthians 5, 10, Christ himself is the judge. As it says, the Father has given all judgment over to the Son. Christ will be the judge. But he's not just the judge. He's also the king. When it's all said and done, you want to know why Peter declares he's the only way for salvation? Because he knows the prophecies through the eyes of the Holy Spirit. What's the declared in Psalm 2, 8, uh, verse, and also verse 11, Daniel 7, 14, Philippians 2, 10. These are a lot of verses, so I doubt you're able to write them all down, right? Christ shall be king, returning to the king of the earth. It says this, to him every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. We're told in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the Lord and his Messiah, and he will 
will reign forever and ever. That's why Jesus is the only way for salvation. That's why. Because when we read the Bible, we go, it's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I mean, what we come to find then eventually is our response in this. And this is a very important point because it's not just what Jesus has done. It's what the Bible plans for us to do. Three things. Number one, we will sing in Revelation 5, 12, worthy is the lamb. Number two, we will serve. Revelation 7, 15, we'll serve him day and night in his temple. And then we will see him. We will be with him. As Josh read in Revelation 22, 4, we will see his face, hear his voice, speak with him as a man speaks to a friend. This is why Jesus is the big deal. That's the best way I can unpack our passage there in Acts. But I am not done there. Because though the the scripture um, calls Jesus what it is, we're still in this idea outside of Acts of making a declaration. There's a countercultural idea. And so I want to identify the false Jesuses. Okay? And this is where we become, you might declare divisive or exclusive. But I want to be clear in where we stand on these things because it's not just complete like antithesis of someone go, like Buddhism going complete opposite way of thinking. What's really important about this is there are versions of Jesus that aren't Jesus as well. And so we need to be clear in what Jesus we're talking about. As I articulate that Jesus I just broke down in that narrative, that's the Jesus that we're trying to describe. But, but hear me, there are other versions that sound really similar to that Jesus, and honestly, I know nobody types in phone numbers nowadays. You just share a contact. But if you, you, you remember when you used to have to type in a number, here's the thing about typing in a, a phone number. You got 10 digits if you include the area code. If you get one of those digits off, one, just one digit, you ain't connected. And so somebody may sound like Jesus, but they're just that digit off and they're not connected. And so I want to give you two um, big, grandiose ideas of, of understanding these false versions of Jesus The first one is religions that look like Christianity. And the other one is our versions of Jesus. Here we go. Um, There are religions today that look a lot like Christianity. And I thought about um, a few of them and how to unpack them, but maybe by the best way that I can do it, um, I want to pick one because I feel like in our context, this is a religion that is in the last 10 years is trying to make a push to make it sound like we're the same. As a matter of fact, I heard somebody um, uh, did something to one of their churches and the news lady says a local church was vandalized. And I thought to myself, that's not a church. And so I want to be clear in where we stand. And I could easily go, my family is a strong Jehovah's Witness background. I don't want to go there. Um, There are certain parts of the prosperity gospel. I felt like we've talked about that before. But um, Arizona has um, uh, the most outside of Utah and California, the most Mormon temples um, in the entire country. And so let me be clear when I say this, the Mormon, and I love you if you're here and you're Mormon and you're going, wow, I am really like, and you brought a Mormon, if you brought your friend and they're Mormon, The point of this message was not to go at Mormonism, I promise you. But I want to just show you how we're different, okay? I want to show you how we're different. As a matter of fact, um, let me read this to you. This comes from, um, and if you're Mormon, you'll recognize one of these. uh, Gordon B. Hinckley, one of the prophets, he makes the same declaration. He says this, the traditional Christ of whom they speak, talking about us, is not the Christ of whom I speak, okay? Um, I had the opportunity last two summers ago to like study Mormonism at length. And I'm telling you, reading documents from Joseph Smith, he would lose his mind right now if he heard the Mormon church was trying to identify with evangelicalism. Lose his mind. I'm telling you, it is not the same Jesus. Though they may present themselves as Christians, they are not. They are not. 
Hear this. Here's their narrative. I want to be clear on this. According to LDS teaching, the Mormon Jesus was born as first a spirit child um, of a probable heavenly father and heavenly mother. This Jesus was a created being. He was not a God initially, but earned his way uh, to deity over time. The second spirit child was Lucifer. Both brothers, Jesus and Lucifer, present their plans to the council of God for a future salvation to earth. Okay? This is the narrative. This is within Mormonism. Jesus' plan was accepted, while Lucifer uh, was not accepted, and therefore he took a third of the host of the angels. You can hear some of our narrative in this, can't you? Third, took a third of the host of angels that was cast down that went with, uh, with Lucifer. Men might one day earn themselves into godhood. Women bear spirit children throughout the eternities as queens and princesses uh, to their husbands. I want you to notice something in all this. I'm not going to get into Mormonism, but just hearing the narrative of Jesus is not the narrative I just told you. That doesn't line up with the biblical Jesus. One of the books I read, probably about, I don't know, maybe 10 books last summer on Mormonism, really trying to get at it. And one of the books that I read... um, that was super helpful, and I would encourage you if you're interested in looking it up, was a book by Lynn K. Wilder called Unveiling Grace. And in this book, she has this quote that I think asks the question about someone who says they follow Jesus, but we're different, okay? I say this in love. Everything I'm trying to put in front of us is we're not, this is not the same Jesus. This leads to an eternity of damnation. That sounds super strong, but it's just where it is. You're in the middle of the street. You shouldn't be there. This is what she says. Many anticipate that the LDS church is morphing towards biblical Christianity. Nevertheless, as long as Mormonism reveres Joseph Smith as a prophet, teaches that Christ failed to establish a church that would last, but Joseph Smith did establish that church and support uh, and supporters and I'm sorry, and supports his extra biblical scriptures as truth. These teachings are far outside of Christianity. Now, just so you know, uh, Lynn Wilder was a Mormon for 30 years, and she taught at L, uh, uh, BYU, okay? She, she was a professor at BYU for multiple years. She's not just some angry Mormon, okay? She's been part of the LDS for a long time and, and, and walked away and seeing these doctrines. Doctrines such as the nature of God, who, who Jesus is, the condition of mankind, the creation, salvation, atonement, marriage, and eternal life are just a few of the divergent teachings. Mormons say they believe in Jesus. Some have even encountered him. Only Jesus can judge the heart. But given that LDS teachings contradict Bi- uh, uh, Bible teachings, here's the question I want you to hear ask. One has to ask, which Jesus? They, they say they've encountered Jesus. Her question is, which Jesus? Because to her point, the Mormon Jesus is drastically different than the Jesus that we hold to of the Bible. So listen, like again, if you're here, I'm not trying to like just blast Mormonism. I'm trying to put in front of you, this is not the same thing. And only the Jesus of the Bible provides salvation. And then the second one, as I am out of time, the second one that I want to put in front of you is our versions of Jesus I think all of us have been in a room. If God was blank, then he would blank. If he was good, he wouldn't allow suffering. If he did this, whatever it is. And what that is, is I want to put in front of you, that begins to morph God into something that maybe he's not. So there's a version of Jesus I want you to be aware of. I wrote down some things that I'm not saying are heresy. I'm just saying the versions of Jesus in our culture that I'm seeing that I'm going, just be careful, you guys. Just be careful. I I wrote a list of these so that I wouldn't get off topic here. I'm not saying these are all bad, but these people consider themselves as the same camp as us. And I don't think I would. Okay. And I'm not, not because I'm a judgmental person though. I am. Okay. This includes four different, uh, Jesus's that I want to talk about. Number one, this includes the Richard Rohr Jesus 
who's advocated by the Liturgist podcast. Now, some of you have no idea what the Liturgist podcast is. Some of you don't know what a podcast is. Some of you, some of you don't know who Richard War is. That is okay, but there are some of you who do. And um, I have not found the liturgist to be very helpful, maybe 10% of the time beneficial in some way. But Richard Rohr holds to a different Jesus in his universal Christ ideology. He holds to a different Trinity. If you read his book on the Trinity, it's completely different than the way that we would hold. So be careful when you hear the name Richard Rohr. You've already, said, you've already heard me say this name a hundred times, but I got to say it again. Um, this includes the Rachel Hollis Jesus, Okay. This, this includes, and it's not just her, but someone who advocates for this self-love above all else, meaning you take care of you. There's a bunch of hearts in the men's bathroom. I don't know if they're in the women's bathroom, but a bunch of hearts is the most important thing is you. Make sure you love yourself, not this give your life away, okay? And so nowhere in the Bible does it tell you love yourself. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't love yourself. The Bible assumes you're going to process that already. What I am telling you is when it starts with you and not Jesus, that's not a good place to start. And this is the kind of uh, Jesus that Rachel Hollis advocates for. The third one is, let's get messy, the white evangelical Jesus. The Jesus that would only vote for Trump. Be careful. Listen, I'm not going to get into the politics of it all. But the reality is if you believe that um, if Trump's not elected, if Trump is the only way sent by Jesus, that's a problem. We begin to have a hope in something on this earth and not the Bible Jesus. Okay? Be careful of that, Jesus. Number four, and lastly, the American gospel Jesus. And this American gospel Jesus is simple. That American gospel Jesus is the one that doesn't allow suffering or pain. But when, it, when that happens, you're out. That Jesus. Be careful that you don't get caught up in that Jesus. So with that being said, um, I'm going to, uh, in a minute, read some exclusive uh, words of Jesus for us to meditate on. But I want to pray first. And then um, we're going to go into a time of, of uh, a corporate response right after that. So let me pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thanks for your goodness and your grace towards us. Thank you that in all of this, we hold fast to you. And we recognize, Jesus, you are the only way for salvation. There's no perversions of you that provide salvation. There are no other names that provide salvation. Jesus, you are the only way that provides salvation. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.